This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today we have the returns of, he is a producer with the morning run over at BFM. He is Sim Wee Boon. Hello. Hey, great to have you. And we have the return of, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a, a director, he is Na'ar Murad. Hello again, everybody. Hey, Na'ar. And our three topics this week, are, topic number one is the Eisner Award. Yes. <laughs> topic number two is binge-watching reality TV. And uh, finally, topic number three is uh, rebooting and can you go too far? So with topic number one, Na'ar, the Eisner Award. What's that? Oh, yeah, it's me. <laughs> okay, the Eisner Award. That's the thing. <laughs> out of, out of um, uh, I wanted to talk about it because Sim knew what the Eisner Award is. Even knew that somebody won that, a Malaysian won that Eisner Award, but Cam didn't know what an Eisner Award. I think our producer, Ali, didn't know what Eisner Award was either. But uh, about a month ago, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, a young Malaysian woman, I think in her 20s, called Erika Eng, won the best webcomic award. Uh, for, for her work called Fried Rice, which is sort of like an autobiographical uh, comic book about her life as a young person who wanted to be an artist. And um, I don't think it, it got a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, hoopla because um, basically nobody knows what an Eisner Award is. And it's just comics. It's not like the Oscars, right? But it's very, very Malaysia bully because the Eisner Award um, is something. And I'd like to talk about <clears throat> what it means to me uh, Will Eisner himself, the man who, who the award is named after, and, and, and of course the award, which, which um, I'm sure Sim will agree with me, is something which only the best of the best would, would win. And there are 31 categories, but webcomic is a huge category. Um, Erica was up against people from all over the world. Um, <clears throat> really great artists. I know a lot of people go comic books, how, how can it be great art? You should see her work. I, I haven't read it, but it's, it's beautifully drawn. And um, I hear it's, it's, it's really, really good. But anyway, um, Will Eisner is the man who, who the award is named after. He's gone now. He um, was born in 1917, died in 2005. And, and my own experience with Will Eisner is very strange. Um, in the good old days when I was um, about seven or eight, I used to read a lot of comics at my barber shop. Because they'd sit you down, and then actually while you're waiting, they would have this table full of battered old comics, and it would be anything from horror comics to to, to Chinese kung fu comics to Beano's and Dandies and uh, 2000 AD and stuff like that. And you just take your pick. So one day I came across this thing, no cover, nothing, and it was by Warren Magazines. War Warren Magazines. If anybody, late <laughs> 40s and 50s remembers, used to do um, horror comics. Creepy, eerie, Vampirella, something called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was about, about movie monsters and movie horror. You know, it was like a, like a movie magazine. And they decided to reprint works of Will Eisner. And I liked it so much, I started hunting for these, these, these comics. And what, what, it was a magazine-sized comic, and it would have about five or six of his stories um, of his character called The Spirit, which he created in 1940. Um, and these were seven to eight page stories. Very, very succinct. You know, most of them were not continued. There was nothing like a story could go on for about two years and eventually turn into a movie. These were very, very short stories. 
And I had no idea that these stories were written in the 40s. I just thought it was written by a current comic book writer artist who was just writing about a hero in the 40s. And they were just so sophisticatedly done. And I must tell you, that in the 70s, that was when there was this, this, this um, a bit of a renaissance. That's where people, um, a lot of the, the, uh, the, the, the big names today, like Frank Miller and, and, um, um, and also big names then, like Dennis O'Neill, um, um, Neil Adams, people like that, were, were getting famous. They were doing really good work. Can I ask then, um, so Will Eisner, did, you're talking about, um, I, I'm kind of trying to picture it in my head, but does the spirit of the work of Will Eisner, do you think that reflects in any way in Erica Ng's work or indeed in, in the prize in general? Well, well, the prize in general, because, um, because in the 70s, when I was reading all these comic books, right, Marvel's DCs, the ones that are now considered classics, half of them were not really done very well. Um, some of them were great. Some of them were well, well written, well drawn. But most of it was just, you know, basic stuff for, 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 for entertainment of children. But I was amazed that this guy, Will Eisner, was doing really, really sophisticated stuff. And, and, I, and I mean sophisticated. I didn't realize it was sophisticated. It was just better drawn. It was hilarious. It, was, it had tension. It had humor. It was just wonderful. And it was only later that I found out that he did these comics. Um, the best comics... Um, he did after the war. He, had, he, he started the spirit, went to war in 1942, and then um, had his own, uh, uh, he had other artists do the story for him. And when he got back in 1945, something had grown. He had become, the war had shown him something. He had done illustrations in the war for, for you know, army magazines and stuff like that. And his, his, his um, talent as a storyteller just grew. From 1945 to 1952, he did comics, he did stories for the spirit, and never more than seven or eight pages. Sim, uh, you're a comic book kind of guy, aren't you? I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I read, read them and like, I quite enjoy them. Yeah. Do you yeah, know Will Eisner at all? I mean, I know of Will Eisner. I'm not super familiar with his work, but I've seen, I think, Contract of God. That's like his famous ones. I think that's, I mean, by nature of him being, I know about the awards because, um, a few Marvel comic book artists, DC comic book, some comic book artists that like, I really enjoy, they've won Eisner Awards. So that's how mm -hmm. I know. And I know that it's a big deal to win an Eisner Award. It's like, it's a big deal, you know? I mean, within the comic sphere circle and as, I mean, if you pick up, if you go to like a comic book store, or you go to a store and you pick up a graphic novel and it has a Will Eisner stamp there, you know it's good in some form or another. It's yeah, a, like a stamp just he was like people like Milton Kenneth and a few others. Yeah, they were exactly, their time. Yeah. They were doing real art in a time exactly, when comic yeah. books were just newspaper strips. Newspaper, yeah, Superman, yeah, Batman yeah. and all that was very I don't know, but from the way you described Eisner, it, for somewhat, for the work that I'm more familiar with, like is the Hayao Miyazaki, uh, the Studio Ghibli guy. The way you described it made me sound like he is kind of like the Western version of him, which is like, you know, when you, when you talk to people about comic books, the... Uh, general perception, general thinking is like a superhero, you know, kind of like the Marvel, Avengers, Batman and all. But uh, Eisner's stuff is more about life. It's more kind of like, you know, it's, it's more than that. It's more than just a superhero kind of stuff, which I think is reflected in the sense of uh, Erika's work because um, if you've read the story, it's actually a very simple and nuanced story, you know, like um, it's just depicting. So the background is Erika is this girl from Batu Pahat. And then she, you know, moved to KL and then I think she went overseas to study. I'm not exactly sure about the full background, but the comic book itself is about this girl. Just, just kind of like collections of 
memories, I think snapshots of memories of her in Bangsa, living in Bangsa with her cousin, right before her cousin was going to go to uni. So it's just like, you know, snapshots of like herself, like, oh, I, I need to send my uni application. I want to do animation. And then her friends telling, wow, uni is going to be very expensive, lah. you know, like, you know, are you sure you want to go out to Malaysia? So it's these are very real moments that um, me telling you now doesn't sound that great but it's relatable and when you read the comic and if in its form it has a very nostalgic feeling which i think is one of the reason why it was a big deal um, i'm surprised that it won because eisner award is a very western thing you know like it's a, it's a very american thing um and i would imagine the judges to be american to be you know caucasians i mean i'm not exactly sure but definitely not a malaysian in the judge panel lah. so the comic book, if you read it, it's if you're a Malaysian, it feels very intrinsically Malaysian. You can immediately pick up on the cues, on the kind of like patterns and all. So, you know, when you read it, it means more to you. So, I, I, what I find surprising is that like these Eisner Award people, when they look at a comic and they were, I mean, if they were able to relate with it, and, uh, and I hope they did, uh, that, that, that was the bridge that I thought was really great because, you know, I mean, one of the panels she had is just eating breakfast, eating yao chakwai, dipping into coffee. <laughs> you, know, you, you explain well, that to a white guy in America, he'll be like, well, "Where's the bacon and eggs?" You know. So, well, I, I, I mean, just also to add, I, I'm not a comic book person uh, at all, but I, I have had a look at uh, Erica's work. I shouldn't really call it Erica; I don't know her, but uh, it's beautiful. It, I mean, one important aspect is it's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's a watercolor yeah, yeah, style. It's, yeah. you know, the Eisner Award is not just a writing thing; it's also like art and just mm. um, and the um, visual aspect. Yeah, and I think web comics is not something that Americans, American creators have gotten into because there are other categories. And I think the Americans and probably the Japanese will probably, um, you know, like like get all the awards based on you know best character, best series, best you know things which are more commercial. Yeah, Whereas I think web comics. We are talking about when I look at all the um, uh, nominees that, that Erica was up against, it all sounded like that kind of stuff. No, none of it was about you know a, a major science fiction thing or or superheroes or anything mm. epic. Very very down to earth. Very much about lives. Well, uh, we, kind of we, stuff. I, I must I must go check out um, Erica. How how do I find it, Sim? Do you know? Just Google fried rice, Erica um, Eng. Yeah. In fact, there's a page you can click on it and just read it from there. It's free. Oh, so, okay. It's like the most Malaysian thing. It's free. Right, because what I saw, it looked really beautiful. So I must check it out. We must move on, though. Um, so, but well done to her, Misha Bole. Misha Bole. Sure. <laughs> I think this is her first web comic or something like that. Like, it's, it's definitely a first. Like, wow. So shout out yeah. to yeah. she's yeah. very young, like twenty one, twenty two. Wow. So we don't we don't need Oscars anymore. We just need Eisner's. I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot cheaper than Tell the that. <laughs> Eisner's good enough. So we move on though. Topic number two, uh, Sim. Mm. Reality TV. Yeah, so but I just want to talk about reality TV. Um, I mean, I've always loved reality TV, but I think this whole MCO period and all kind of has rekindled, uh, you know, um, a I wouldn't say love, but like I, I got time to watch a lot more reality TV and it's spilled over to now where we're kind of going back to normal. And, you know, I've been watching a lot of it. A lot of my friends have been watching it and just want to talk about kind of like why... I feel like reality TV shows have a way of like, I mean, I, I wouldn't say this for everyone, but most of the people I know love watching it, even though a lot of the reality TV shows that you watch are really trashy, you know? I mean, the, the ones that I like, I mean, I like a lot, but there's one called Below Deck. There's one called, 
too hot to handle. You know, these these are just very. Uh, it's about rich people. It, you know, drama, love. Like it, it totally serves you no real value. But you you watch it, you become mesmerized by it. You you know what's happening. You know that it might more not be real. It might be structured. But whatever it is, you watch it and you're like. I don't know, for me, I, I can't stop watching it. And then I end up talking to my friends about it. And I, I feel like it's a form of um, weird form of escapism, like a visual Xanax that you take to kind of like just, wow. And with what's going on around us and even part of our nature, my job, which is in news, which I read all the global news every day, um, to have this funny outlet was it was really great. And I think um, if you, I, I noticed that during the MCO period where everyone's stuck at home and they're forced to watch TV and all, there was an uptick in people watching reality TV. And I think one of the reasons why people watched it and continued watching it is because it was a great way to escape from like all the bad stuff in, in around the world. So I, I don't know, do you guys watch reality TV? Do you guys enjoy it? Um, do, do, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there are several genres, right? I mean, which yeah, like yeah. most because... There are some which is like, like you said, the lives of, of unusual people, rich Gottis, for example. Yeah. And then there, are, there, are, there are people at work, which is, mm-hmm. you know, like tattoo artists, people who, who modify bikes, so, you know, look yeah, for yeah, antiques. Yeah. And then you have those crazy ones where you, you just take a bunch of people. And then, because that's why I like Amazing Race, because they had people doing crazy things and they didn't have time to be fake or anything like that. I think that's why it's great because even under the umbrella, they were just you know um, yeah. climbing up ladders and which do you yeah, like? Yeah, I like the the super drama ones, the one that really is just <laughs> like so pointless. Uh, and you you never like these people have probably never lived in reality to begin with. But I also really like those um, the 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 ones that are like um more serious ones. You know, like they they like a documentary at the same time where they follow the lives of real people. What a professional what does. Yeah, the professional does, you know, like, yeah. But somehow or rather, I think, you know, usually stuff, those, that side of reality TV, it starts out earnestly. Maybe the first two seasons is like, all right. But then after that, I think when they start making money and it picks up steam, it becomes very like, like pawnbrokers like that, you know, I really enjoyed it. But I think after a while, it just became a show on its own. And yeah. That- yeah. See, I'm, I'm very suspicious of the whole reality TV uh, genre because it, uh, reality TV gave us Donald Trump. Yes. And, yes. And, and also uh, the producer of the, the first reality TV show, really the big one, Survivor. The producer of that was a man by the name of Mark Burnett, who gave us Donald Trump and who, <laughs> who is a, a deeply... Uh, who has changed reality. Troubling man. But, no, but, and absolutely. And reality, the word reality is really, I mean, it's stretched beyond its possible limits because the reality of, of, uh, of Donald Trump as a businessman is he's a terrible businessman. And, yeah, and, but it, it can persuade us that he's a genius, but he's awful. He's bankrupted his companies like ten times. He's but that's the thing, right? Wanted his inheritance. Yeah. Part of the let, if we're going to zoom in on like Donald Trump, right? The creation. No, but I'm just Donald saying. I'm just, yeah. I'm not, I mean, across the board, that that can we trust the so-called reality of any of this reality TV? Um, I would say that if you're watching it, I mean, to any sane person, uh, you should realize that at the end of the day, there's the word TV stuck to the end. La. So it's somehow or other, it's not 100%. It should never be 100% because I think if it's 100% depicted like that, then there's some real like issues with the world. Um, I always watch reality TV with kind of like the realizing, and I'm sure a lot of people do with understanding that it's it's, it's definitely scripted and produced. In fact, yeah, heavily I was produced talking, at some point. Yeah, I was talking to Cam about it earlier that that 
like Cam said, after a couple of seasons, you notice that people start to realize it's a big show. Mm. There's a bit of self-promotion going on there. So people get more and more phony. Yeah, people, exactly. People exactly. tend to not be themselves because they know that, that, that they've probably got people watching them and, and suddenly there's, there's, a, there's a measure of fame they're getting if they're interesting enough. Yeah. I, I think know, it's I, funny that like, I mean, for me, what I, it, it's watching it, I watch, I go and watch reality TV shows, uh, especially the ones that's full of drama. It's not for me to kind of like watch and learn something new or to kind of like, it's more to just, it's an entertainment. You know, I watch it for entertainment. You're switching off. You're switching yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, right, I'm switching off. And I think it gives you a, um, I mean, not all reality TV, even if the dramatic ones are bad. You know, they have moments in the, these shows where it becomes relatable to a point where you watch and you're like, oh, okay, you know. Do you but, cry? Do you cry? Uh, well, I enjoy watching them cry, but the the crying one, the crying one, the crying one are the ones. There's there's one that I recently watched, which was like it's called Love on the Spectrum, which is about um, uh, autistic people finding love, and th- that one, that one is like whoa. Like, Every whoa. time, is it? Yeah, that's like whoa. Okay, yeah, that that was some real feelings, but yeah. I mean, even apart from that, you know, reality reality movie as well. Like there's the yeah. uh, the movie Jackass. Have you guys watched it? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you know that that when that came out, that was like everyone was like wow, you know. Yeah, I must admit, I, I watched that latest. Yes, Jackass film. Yeah, it, it cropped up and everyone was saying, oh, Jackass, it's like the worst, it's civilized, the lowest point of civilization. Exactly. Has, has been, I watched it and it was hilarious. And I think one thing about it, you know how a lot of people, you know, categorize, I think reality TV is a very special American product. That it is, it encapsulate America. I think, I think if like people were to ask, you know, like how uh, Korea has K-pop, um, we, we have Nasi Lama, you know, um, Thailand has Tongyam or like, you know, these cultural exports, right? The one thing that America is culturally exports the, the best at is probably reality TV. It's very crazy. It's really people. funny yeah, that the Japanese people. actually Same, started what first. They do. They Japanese reality TV is good, like wholesome, like Terrace, is Terrace House mm-hmm. Japanese? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, but you know, they had that thing, they had the thing called Challenge or something that, that started it all. Um, which became quite a huge hit because it's people literally being put through all kinds of torture. Like they've been, oh, the they've prank not eaten show ones, right? The what prank was it show, called? Yeah. yeah, there was way before Survivor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they, they are but hilarious the as well. the Japanese didn't quite, didn't quite um, uh, 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 negotiate that into it being their product. The Americans took over, as, as you rightfully said. Yeah, but every culture is different. Malaysia can't do reality TV because people are too polite and too guarded. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, it'd be so yeah. boring. In yeah. <laughs> Malaysian reality would be so boring. We've got to move on. But later, I do believe, Sim, you're going to recommend uh, your pick of the uh, reality TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We're, we're going to go to our, our reality TV expert, Sim, um, <laughs> who's going to fill us in on that. But we're going to move on. But in a moment, uh, we're going to be uh, uh, talking about reboots here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, uh, Sim Weeboon, and Na'ar Murad. And now, topic number three is reboots and when they go too far. So uh, I was recently watching a new version from, I think, last year of a BBC drama of um, an Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot whodunit starring John Malkovich. And just a little bit of background, because uh, the Agatha Christie estate had previously sold the rights to the, the rival ITV. And, and then very recently, they've sold it to the BBC. So the ITV had mined 
all of the Agatha Christie over the years, and they've done so many dramas. So now the BBC have got this, this it's, uh, it's a prize asset, but it's been done to death. So what do they do? How do they reboot these classes? In the case of this one, they set the stories 10 years later. Hercule Poirot is down on his luck. He's basically out of work and he's disgraced and the world is very different from the earlier ones. But all 1920s is all very fun and glitz. And I really enjoyed it. But when I look at uh, people's responses, they were so angry. How dare they do this? Because this is not Agatha Christie. I, I switched on to watch Agatha Christie and said I'm watching some like Bane from Batman uh, being Hercule Poirot. So uh, that's a, a youth reference there, Sim, for you. Um, mm, yes, like- I understood that. I understood <laughs> okay. that, yes, yeah. We didn't, not, not the reference I would use, but uh, yeah, okay. Good try, good try. Some, some Muslim fellow, is it Bane what? Bane, <laughs> Bane from London? Bane? Uh, and uh, so uh, I mean, re- recently, I think we all enjoyed the Sherlock uh, reboot, which was with Benedict Cumberbatch and everything. Um, but that was very true to the original Conan door, whereas I cannot bring myself to watch the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes because <laughs> I will be offended. I know is I'll that the offended. one with the Iron Man actor, is it? Yeah. Yes, Robert Downey. Uh, okay, well, yeah, I watched it. It was all right. Yeah, but because I... I, I prefer I, Sherlock. I prefer Bending Company Bass version. Yeah, but because I'm... I, a, I, think, I, I think the Robert Downey Sherlock Holmes was a bit too Marvel comic book. I mean, the you moment know, I saw Guy Ritchie there, you you know what you're getting already. Yeah, speed ramping. Which I think, kind of which I think is what these people need to realize when they watch a reboot. You you see who's producing it, you see who's acting it, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, don't why why if I mean if you already you know I mean just just look at it and be like okay, he's done or they've done series and movies like this, so they're now gonna reboot this. You know, you, you can tell whether you're going to like it or not. And then if you watch it and you don't like it, it just affirms it. So why do you still get angry about it? No, Sim, I take your point. And I think what I've done is I've embargoed it. I've said I'm not going to watch it. But I, I feel like that's not enough. I feel I should go over to Guy Ritchie's house and burn it down to the ground. <laughs> do you because... enjoy that? Like all the burnings, I guess, <laughs> yeah. No, because, I mean, I actually, I'm, I'm kind of like invested in Conan Doyle's Charlotte Holmes in a way that I'm not invested emotionally in Agatha Christie's Hercule. Well, I think I think Hercule Poirot they've they've done it really well over the years and not too often. And the thing is with Sherlock Holmes is like there's still a lot to um, still a lot to discover. And um, there were a lot of people who, when they watched Johnny Lee Miller's um, uh, Elementary and even Sherlock, they were going, um, "Why is he so strange?" And there's even a bit in in Johnny Lee Miller's show where 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 he had they had Sherlock Holmes on the ground sniffing the floor. Right for, for for whatever clues, uh, I'm serious, and and people went like that's too weird. But then the um, fans were very happy about that because if you actually read the books, Sherlock would do the original Conan Doyle Sherlock would do those kind of really really bizarre things, and they are actually maybe in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s they were more conservative in how they they wanted to show Sherlock. It was more the mental gymnastics than his um than his uh his addiction all the kind of stuff which seemed very current, but actually was already put in, was already baked in into the character way, way back in yeah, the 1880s. Yeah. But then the, uh, the source material, I mean, this is, this is a business, entertainment. You, they're out there to make money. These things are not, uh, you, you, I guess, there's no law. 
You don't have to stay faithful to things. But um, can you go too far? You know, in reading. I mean, I, I think you can, but it's just whether you are upfront about it, I guess. You know, like uh, one that I can imagine, I, I don't know if it's correct to say this went too far, but I mean, like Ghostbusters, the reboot, you know, the reboot, which is they changed all the lead actors into lead actress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, some would say they went too far because you changed the gender, but essentially the story didn't change. Uh, and I thought it was all right. And was all right up, as well. Yeah, and it was upfront mm. about it already, right? When they were already feeling it was like, oh, we're going to shoot this and it's going to be uh, all women and all. So if you know what you're getting itself into, and it, Ghostbusters is great, but it got a lot of hate. You know, like a lot of um, Ghostbuster fans were angry, like, why do we need to change them to girls and stuff like that, which I think is really stupid. But, um, you know, I think if you're upfront about kind of like your reboot, if you're going to be upfront about like, okay, we're going to reboot this, but it's going to be very far from the source material. It's going to be very different from the source material. And once that happens, um, me as a fan, and I watch it, I would be okay with it because then I would not judge it for its similarity to the source material. But in fact, I would judge it whether it has the spirit of it and whether if it's a good product at the end of the day. Because you, know, you can go very far, but it just comes out completely rubbish. But I know what really makes you angry, Sim, is when they rebooted, because it's the same with me, when they rebooted the Powerpuff Girls into, into tweens. Oh, yeah, no, no. No, you know what was bad? What was bad, yeah. What was bad for me was Avatar, M. Night Shyamalan's Avatar. Oh, uh, the movie? Yeah, the movie. See, that was bad. That was a reboot which tried to stay to the source material, but done very badly. Because the amount of work that went into the cartoon itself was amazing. They hired actual. It's very Asian-inspired. It, it has Chinese culture, Japanese culture, Eskimo culture, and whatnot. So when the, when the, when the cartoon was made, um, the producers, the creators, they did very heavy research. You know, it, it has like Kung Fu moves, which they actually went to study and got people to like uh, study the different forms of fighting. And then when it came out, you know, it was, it was great. Even up to now, it's gaining a new kind of like popularity again because it's on Netflix and everyone's watching it. Um, but when M. Night Shyamalan did a reboot, it was, it, it was just bad. Like, yeah, you can I've tell that it was... The, I, I'm completely confused. And yeah. the, the movie was just terrible. I, it's terrible. Yeah, because took, the, you can tell from the upfront already that acting was bad. The, the, the storyline, the way they kind of redid the story or the scripting, they kind of like changed a bit of the character's personalities to fit what a what a cinema movie Epic would... Epic cinema yeah, movie. Which, which did not work at all, you know. So it was now, really joyless, wasn't it? Exactly, it was, exactly. It was exactly, fun. Yeah. It wasn't fun. Exactly, yeah. So when you do stuff like that, where it doesn't inculcate the spirit, and even though you're trying to stay true to kind of like the narrative, it doesn't work. So, ah, you see? Now, you see, I have no idea what you're talking about, but <laughs> I, I, I am really pleased that it got you angry, Sim, because you're always like... Because uh, I'm a big, yeah, I'm a big fan. And you, that just now you're uh, like, oh, it's fine by me, you know, they can do whatever they want, but now you're like angry that they've gone so too far. Now, they can do what they want if they do a good job. It's just that even if that film came out with no source material, it's still a bad movie. You get what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, if, go if Ghostbusters, the remake Ghostbusters, full of the one that way they had the, the all lead actresses came out with no previous Ghostbuster movies at all, and it was uh, a new movie on its own. It's still a good movie. It's still an enjoyable. Yeah. All watch. right, so uh, so Sam, you're going to burn them to the ground. Excellent. Uh, no, have you got one that annoys you? That annoys me. Uh. Well, yeah, that the Powerpuff Girls. You're the toddlers. <laughs> you're, not, you're not tweens. You're not supposed to be these these pretty little things. You know, they're supposed to be these almost um. Slightly bizarre looking four year olds. I, like, I'm hoping like, you're I'm hoping you're being ironic. <laughs> I don't think he is. I don't, I don't think, think he is. He is. I don't know if he is. I'm not, I'm not. I have no comments about 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 um, 
My Little Pony. I'm not a brony and I never will be. But um, yeah, Powerpuff Girls. How could? But, okay, but um, Cam, I want to ask you. So this is about movies, but what about cover songs? Does they fall in the same? <laughs> yeah, do they fall in the same gambit? You know, like re re release tracks that's like redone by newer artists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I'm I'm by and large I'm pretty cool with anybody covering anything, unless unless there's something about the brand of the new singer that has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> what they're covering. So a, a short while ago, uh, William Shatner, the actor, Captain Kirk, um, he did, he a, did sp- a cover. He did a cover. He did a recover. He did a spoken word version <clears throat> of Pulp's Ordinary People. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, why, would he, why would the world even need? Exactly. Exactly. I need your outro music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to go and find it on, on the net, people. It's the first uh, thing I'm doing after this. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I like William Shatner, and I'm not that keen on Pulp. I actually prefer William Shatner to Pulp. But it sounds like, why? Why did you do that? <laughs> it makes no sense to me. And um, I mean, I love David Bowie, but I, I don't know, like uh, Kurt Cobain and uh, Nirvana's version of uh, The Man Who Sold the World is fantastic. I think it's yeah, I think, Heroes by the Wallflowers. Yeah, I think yeah, covers yeah. and reboots work if they're done well, regardless of how far they've strayed away from the source material. If on its own it stood its ground as a good product, it's acceptable to me. But when oh, no, it's yes, but what would annoy me is if let's say um, Heroes, David Bowie's Heroes, magnificent, mm-hmm. huge, fantastic song, right? And it's David Bowie's Heroes. So other people come and do homage by doing a cover version. But if someone came along, and I, I cannot think of any particular singer, but some, some newbie singer came along, did a cover version that's really bad, and then whole generations are saying, oh, it's so-and-so's heroes. And, <laughs> and, and David who? That would re- I, they're not going to burn that down. <laughs> well, uh, I, I would join you in that. Tell you truth, I, bet you, I bet you a lot of millennials will say that heroes is a wallflower song. And not a, not a new bit Bowie song. Yeah, probably. and I'm going to burn that down. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but anyway, um, so broadly speaking, I think we're saying we're all pretty cool with uh, reboots and uh, cover versions. They're just got to be good at the end of the day. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's got to be, have something more yeah. than, than than the original in some way. Not right. saying more as in better, but something different. But th- that being said, that being said, they also got to stop at some point, lah. You know, like I think there was a period where Disney just kept on remaking their old, uh, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, but that was, like, it was shot for shot sometimes. It, it didn't give you an added value kind of thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you guys are a multi-billion secret Illuminati company that controls the world. You can hire someone. You, you can create new stuff. You don't have to re- keep on rehashing the old stories. Yeah, some were done really well, but, you know, at some point, just, you know, chill out. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so listen, listen to Sim, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be assassinated tomorrow <laughs> So we move on though to uh, Final part of the show, recommendations I recommend something that we think might be of interest And Na'amura is going to go first A lot of people still remember Michael Crichton I, I, I'm assuming If you miss his brand of um, um, Plausible science 
with adventure and mystery and, and that kind well, of Jurassic, I mean, Jurassic Park, Park is, is favorite, favorite, everybody famous says Jurassic, but I don't know if anybody remembers that that's another thing that's been that's been um, taken over when you talk about Jurassic Park it's Steven Spielberg's no longer Michael yeah. Crichton well he wrote a book called Andromeda Strain way way back in 67 very very good story about a space um, virus very tense very wonderful it was made by uh, made into a film by, by Robert Wise and um, they've written a sequel uh, with the permission of his estate, his wife. It's called The Andromeda Evolution. And it's written by a writer of uh, science fiction novels, uh, comic books. But he's also a PhD in robotics called Daniel H. Wilson. And it's, um, I'm reading it right now. And I will say to people who love Michael Crichton, except for nobody loves his uh, cli- uh, climate change denial book, but to people who love Michael, Michael Crichton, it's got exactly that feel. It's got all the best of what Michael Crichton does. You know, like heaps of technology, which sound very plausible, good adventure, great um, characters, and just a whole lot of fun. It'll probably be a movie in, in about a couple of years once people start shooting again. So it's called The Andromeda Evolution by Daniel H. Wilson. So that's uh, Michael Crichton, well, not Michael Crichton, but... Uh, Daniel a- H. Wilson. Daniel H. Wilson's follow-on from Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain. It's called the Andromeda Evolution, yeah. Right, cool. Uh, uh, Sim, what do you got? Yeah, I'm going to recommend it. Well, I mentioned it earlier already, but uh, I'm going to replica- recommend people to watch Love on a Spectrum. It's on Netflix. Uh, I think it's like six to eight episodes. can't really remember, but it's great. It's a, a reality TV show about autistic people dating and finding love. And, you know, it's not just single autistic people. They were they also interviewed and showcased uh, autistic people that were uh, it, uh, already a couple. I don't know if actually I should say autistic people, maybe people on the spectrum. I mean, um, I'm still learning. Watching it actually made me research and read more about people on the spectrum, people with disabilities. And it's, it's very nice. It's very wholesome. Um, some parts of it feels very voyeuristic because you, you are really, you know, when you watch reality TV, Somehow or rather, the people that you watch, the characters you watch, you know that they're kind of acting. They know they are on a TV show, so they act in certain ways. But watching this, like I feel like they aren't acting. You know, they are hundred percent genuine because because of their condition, they they just don't act. They don't pretend. They don't lie. They're very honest. So when you watch that, you are you know it's the veil of reality TV is taken away in a sense where these people they, they are like that on TV and they're probably like that in real life as well. So if, Except if for when would, the show gets really famous, then they'll probably get actors. To pretend yeah, or to be I mean, yeah, I mean, or the producers have edited it heavily, like, which we don't know <laughs> unless we, we are there. But um, stripping all that way, it's just a great wholesome show. You will smile, you 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 be feel a bit emotional. It's very touching, you know, feel good. Like it's a great watch. I would recommend that. Yeah, and it's uh, they're American. They are Americans, presumably. No, it's got British people as well. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All oh, right, and that's uh, Love on the Spectrum. Yes. Uh, check good. it out. Netflix, isn't it? That's yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, it's produced it's on... by Netflix. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, cool. Um, all right. So uh, my recommendation is a little, a little peculiar, but uh, it's going back in time. Um, I've been reading uh, Charles Dickens' book, uh, Nicholas Nickleby. Maud B. Dick. No, no, that's yes, yes. Uh, he he goes wrote uh, Moby Dick for Melville. <laughs> <laughs> it's Melville was not 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 in the mood. He really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's about uh, Moby Dick's about a little orphan, isn't it? Orphan whale, uh, <laughs> <laughs> lost on the streets of London. Please, sir, can I have more krill? <laughs> no, not Moby Dick. No, I, Nicholas Nickleby. It's um, it's actually really good. But as I'm reading it, because it's 
I, it was always to told to me um, as being a comic book, a funny book um, with about funny things, but actually it's really horrifying because <laughs> it's about this, it's set partly anywhere uh, in this school up in uh, the north of the country. And basically this school is a place where unwanted children are sent and the, the school teachers up front, he'll kill them. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, I mean, um, I, I, you lost me there. Uh, he, yeah, the, the, the school teacher, <clears throat> Mr. Wackford Squeers, um, basically, they kill these children. Uh, they abuse what? them. What? Well, they do because these are unwanted children. And uh, by a certain age, you know, the, the graveyard, when, when actually Dickens went up to do the research, I mean, there were graveyards. It was just filled with these children. Um, My God, so, so, so um, uh, Dickens ghost wrote Moby Dick and Stephen King ghost wrote <laughs> Nicholas Nickleby yes. for... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it is. But it's like, it's funny. It's funny as well. Um, Kid Cemetery, the other name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant book because it's funny and um, it is horrifying. Uh, and, and no one told me that Nicholas Nickleby would be so terrifying. But um, so I'm kind of, I'm recommending Nicholas Nickleby, but actually I'm really going to recommend uh, Strangely Connected to it, which as I'm reading it, I'm hearing music in my head. And this one song in particular, which I keep hearing is uh, Kate Bush. Uh, so uh, we're going to play out with a Kate Bush song. It's uh, Man with a Child in His Eyes, uh, which I keep hearing as I'm reading this book. Wait, so you're recommending the song or the book I, now? I am recommending the song because I haven't finished reading the book yet. So if, if, if you're hearing this, the, the song while you're reading the book, shouldn't you see a doctor? Maybe a, <laughs> <laughs> a nice neurologist. Maybe. <laughs> it's great, great connection there, but wow, okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to recommend Kate Bush's uh, Anything by Kate Bush. Um, Anything um, as, by Kate Bush. As I'm reading this, I'm just hearing it in my head a lot of uh, Kate Bush. And... Um, there's nothing wrong with that, nah. I'm not going crazy. <laughs> but I, I would but want it. I, I, I wanted it to be outro with William Shatner's cover of. Right. No, <laughs> people, you, you're going to have to go and check that Man, one yourself. With a child in his eyes. It, it, exactly. exactly. I need to check it out after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, we're going to play it with a man with a child in his eyes, which uh, Kate Bush wrote when she was uh, 13, I think, and this recording is when she was 16. Wow. Uh, the woman's a genius. Um, yeah, she's a Mensa genius, yeah. Well, she's brilliant. And, <clears throat> Charles, and we sing along. Um, yes, Can no. you do that? Like, have us sing along? <laughs> as a... No, we're not going to do that because we'd ruin it. And, uh, and then I have that to would be a you. bad reboot. Bad that would reboot. be a bad reboot, and I have to burn you to the ground. So, uh, with that. <laughs> Radio karaoke, why not? We come to the end of this week's show, and it only remains me now to thank uh, Na'a Murad. Welcome, are you there? Thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and uh, Sim Weeboon. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to have you. And myself, Cam Ruslan. And uh, well, we're going to play it with Kate Bush, Man with a Child in His Eyes, here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.